it's all about how do we how do we balance nutrients and digestibility with carbon footprint and availability and price because all of these things have to work together. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our goal is to share research findings to help support continued innovation in the pet food industry. I'm your host, Julia Pizzali, and I'm here today for our guest, Dr. Kurt Rosentretter, to discuss about sustainability in the pet food industry. Uh, thank you, Kurt, for being here today with us. Julia, thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. I'm very excited to, to share some thoughts with you and with the audience, and hopefully everyone will find uh, some of the things I say a, a bit uh, insightful and, and helpful in their sustainability journey. I'm sure they will. But before we start talking about sustainability and discuss about it, do you mind uh, telling our audience who you are, where do you work, and your career journey, and telling them how you end up in your position today? How much time do we have? As much as you want, just <laughs> no more than an hour. <laughs> okay, sure. So I work in, at Iowa State University, uh, as do you. Uh, I am a professor in the Department of Agricultural and Biosystems Engineering and also a professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. So uh, I should also say that I am a visiting professor at Izara in Lyon, France, and I'm also a visiting professor at Polytech Montpellier in Montpellier, France. And a lot of the work that I do Uh, at these three universities, it relates to sustainability, sustainability assessment, sustainability improvement. And I know we will talk about what does that mean through the podcast. But the context for the sustainability assessments that I do is related to the storage, the preservation, the processing of grains, of uh, food products for humans, for animals, for pets, for fish. So it's, it's all related to the production and processing and use of different ingredients. I've been here at Iowa State since 2011, so I'm entering uh, my 13th year. <laughs> uh, time flies when you're having fun. Before I was at Iowa State, I was a research scientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service. I was located in Brookings, South Dakota. And my research program was focused on uh, industrial fermentations and value-added uses for fermentation byproducts. And prior to that, I was an uh, assistant professor at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. I taught manufacturing, uh, engineering design. And before that, <laughs> I was... Uh, a uh, process engineer for a small engineering company. And I had the, the opportunity to design uh, pet food processing plants, uh, the uh, IMS plants in the USA, uh, which were then sold to Dr. Gamble and then sold to Mars. So uh, the 
pet food plant I spent most of the time working with was in Aurora, Nebraska. So some of you may be familiar with that plant. Um, but also I designed flour mills and feed mills and biodiesel processing plants. So I went to Iowa State University and because I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I grew up in Iowa. Um, I grew up on a farm in Northwest Iowa. My plan was to be a farmer, but, uh, that wasn't in the cards because, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so I had to go to college and figure out what to do with my life instead of be a farmer. And, uh, I knew I wanted to be a professor uh, my first year, which is really odd. Most people don't, don't make that choice in the first year. Um, I should ask you when you made the choice to be a professor, but, uh, We'll get to that in a bit. Um, so I started out in biochemistry and for whatever reason, uh, as a first year student, I did not find it very interesting. And I, in retrospect, I understand why. Um, but I, I bounced around between a couple of majors and then finally landed on agricultural biosystems engineering. And it was a hallelujah moment because... I could learn about processing and learn about biological materials, and I loved it so much, I stayed for a master's degree and a PhD degree. And um, the irony is, even though I ran away from biochemistry, uh, I use organic chemistry and biochemistry every day in what I do uh, as a professor. So... The world is very ironic, and if we have any listeners out there that are either undergraduate students or graduate students, you never know what you're going to need and what you're going to be working on. Even things you hate, you might end up doing that every day, so you just have to get through it. So that's my journey in a, in a very short, abbreviated nutshell. No, that's awesome, man. I love that you knew what you wanted to do in your first year. I definitely didn't. And when did you make the choice to be a professor? I don't know. I kind of went for my master's and then I said, I'm never going to do a PhD. I'm tired of doing research. And then, okay, actually, I want to do a PhD. And then I just loved research and and teaching. And I love, I love to be in a learning environment. So I think that's why I love academia and how I wanted to stay in. But I think let's start talking about sustainability. And my cat is here and he always shows up. So he just... You can see his tail there. What is your cat's name? Colby. His is from cobalamin, a nutrient. So his named after a vitamin. Right? <laughs> nice. Very nice. Uh, I think to get everyone on the same page, uh, I think let's start talking about what is sustainability. So we are on the same page to when we discuss about it. So this is a complicated question, Julia. And um, I do teach a course um, here at Iowa State at Polytech and at Zara related to sustainability, uh, quantifying it, measuring it, estimating it, reporting it. So sustainability is it's a hot topic this year. It's been a hot topic for, for many years. You know, really, the idea of sustainability began in 1987 when the Brundtland Report was released from the United Nations Committee, uh, was referred to as the Brundtland Commission, but their their task was to uh, understand and 
predict and make recommendations for a sustainable future. But prior to that, uh, really the, the field of sustainability and what we are doing in this field nowadays really arose in the 1960s uh, and 1970s when it became recognized that there was a lot of industrial pollution and uh, then we had the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, governments both here in the U.S. as well as other parts of the world started to recognize that humans are impacting the environment. Uh, it's taken quite some time to actually get governments on board with making wholesale changes. But, um, you know, bit by bit, piece by piece from the 1960s forward, uh, there have been many pesticides and uh, other chemicals that have been banned because of scientific research showing that there are significant problems for humans or for animals. Um, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in that space. So sustainability, uh, it's a hot topic now this year, last year. Um, you may hear the words decarbonization or carbon capture and sequestration. Here in Iowa, we have a lot of discussion about capturing the CO2 from the ethanol plants and fertilizer plants and then building a pipeline to to move this material to Illinois and other states and then uh, pump it underground to sequester carbon. So, you know, really this idea of sustainability has, it's not new. It's been around for decades. It's just we see a lot of effort going at the moment, uh, especially this summer where we have the heat domes that have settled on the northern hemisphere. And I know this week here in Iowa, we're supposed to be approaching 100 degrees, but I was reading a story uh, yesterday in the New York Times about uh, how places in Iran, for example, are approaching 150 degrees Fahrenheit and um, provinces are running out of water. So um, I think it's it's becoming in people's minds more and more that we've got to do something. Uh, otherwise, our future generations are going to really be suffering. I mean, we're suffering enough at the moment, but um, so... Sustainability is more than reducing your carbon footprint, and I'll talk about carbon footprints in a few minutes. Uh, it's more than being efficient at your factory. It's more than being efficient on the farm. And how do we understand what is sustainability? And really, the, the idea of sustainability, for a long time, it's a, it was a buzzword that people would use without really understanding what is it. And many companies could claim sustainability or improvements in sustainability without really having to back it up. So the Paris Climate Accords that were originally signed back in 2015 and then um, finalized in Kigali, Rwanda in 2016 um, really have mandates, voluntary mandates to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And it's not just CO2. You talk about carbon footprint. There are a variety of chemicals that will in, will increase the greenhouse gas, uh, the temperature holding capacity of the atmosphere. And so it's more than CO2. The CO2 is, is sort of the baseline chemical. But when we talk about agricultural practices, you know, really methane and nitrous oxide are the two other uh, big greenhouse gas chemicals but there are so many i don't know about you but this week i have my ac running a lot yeah and, uh, <laughs> you know i 
I can't imagine living without AC, although many people around the planet still do. Uh, the chlorofluorocarbons that are used in AC systems for the heat exchangers, uh, they leak. They, the air conditioner systems will have to be recharged. I know I need to recharge the one on my car. But they have upwards of 12,000 times the greenhouse gas potential, the temperature holding potential of CO2. So uh, pesticides, chemicals, fertilizers, they all emit chemicals. And there are hundreds of chemicals that cause uh, an increase in or potential increase in temperature holding capacity in the atmosphere. So when we talk about carbon footprint, really we're talking about um, what are the impacts of all of these different kinds of chemicals on the atmosphere. And we put it in terms of the impact related to CO2. Is it two times more impactful? Is it 12,000 times more impactful? Is it 300 times more impactful? But CO2 is is the baseline in terms of what we refer to as carbon footprint. So um, environmental impacts include more than just global warming. There are many other things. For example, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to get cancer. And uh. <laughs> the, the impact on the human body of different chemicals, uh, we can quantify that uh, with a parameter called ecotoxicity uh, or human health. So will it cause cancer in humans? Will it cause cancer in animals? If it doesn't cause cancer, will it still make you sick? And to what extent? And so um, ecotoxicity, human health, but then we can think about environmental sustainability uh, also in terms of um, lakes and water bodies. If you drive through Iowa in the summer, you might see lakes that or in other parts of, of the country that are turning green because of algae that's growing. That's what we refer to as eutrophication, where phosphorus, excess phosphorus, is accelerating the growth of, of algae. Um, we see this happening also in the Gulf of Mexico because of the nitrogen and phosphorus runoff from the corn belts. And so eutrophication is a, another environmental parameter that we can measure. Um, acid rain, which we don't think about so much anymore, but uh, around large cities especially cities that are heavily involved in manufacturing where there's sulfur dioxide emitted. Um, the environmental parameter is acidification, which basically quantifies the, um, the accelerated wear and tear on buildings, equipment, uh, but also impacts on water bodies, which ultimately when we talk about environmental sustainability, we're talking about degradation of different aspects of the environment. But ultimately, that will impact us as humans, either what we drink or what we eat or what we're exposed to. So, um, so environmental sustainability is part of the story, but the other part of the story is social sustainability. So if anyone listening to your podcast likes to buy fair trade coffee or fair trade chocolate, you know, the, the fair trade label is one aspect of trying to to promote a more sustainable, socially sustainable um, supply chain. And what does that mean? That means that companies um, are responsible for uh, and promoting 
education amongst their workers, fair labor, fair housing, um, a variety of, of social impacts because, you know, you can be producing products along your supply chain, but if the workers are mistreated, the workers aren't happy, uh, the workers are repressed, then it's really not a sustainable supply chain that you have. So really the, the human element, the environmental element, but then the third element is economic sustainability. And when you talk to companies, what most companies talk about is we we will make changes, but we can't go bankrupt. We have to have to be in business for the long term. But the flip side is the consumer. If products are too expensive, they won't make those purchases. So, for example, do you buy organic food or not at the grocery store? I don't. I go with the more traditional one. <laughs> Same for me because it's more expensive. Yeah. But um, so the the three components: the economic, the environmental, and the human. Um, oftentimes we refer to those as the triple bottom line. Your supply chain or your product is not really sustainable unless you can achieve all three at the same time. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point. Sorry, I was making a, a short question longer. What is sustainable? No, no, that, that's great. That's great because sometimes you only think about CO2 footprint and that's all. That's sustainable, but we need to think about the whole picture and... Many adult, maybe in, many in academics, they only think CO2 less reduced, but as a business as well, how can we help everyone that is on it, the employer, the employee, and making the product available in the market? Because as, as you said, it can be the most sustainable product. If nobody buys, it's not, it's not going to be sustainable because it's not going to be a product at the end of the day. Exactly. So know that it's great. And from your experience in the pet food industry with the sustainability work with them with some companies, um, I know you mentioned some carbon footprint and some other ways to measure it. Is there any other one that is more targeted and what in your opinion is the best way to go for when you think about environmental sustainability? Uh, I know a lot of companies may oversupply protein, so it's a lot of waste there that's not going to be utilized by the animal. And sometimes we don't look much at it. What is, in your opinion, the best way to start tracking sustainability in an environmental standpoint? So that's a really interesting question. Um, there are many companies who are doing this uh, already. And there are many companies who are questioning and wondering, should we start tracking? And I would say doing a carbon footprint or carbon accounting is a place to start but it's not a complete journey. There are so many other things that really need to be considered, like the eutrophication, the acidification, the human health, the ecotoxicity. Uh, there are so many ways that you can consider improving your product sustainability or improving your supply chain sustainability. But at the moment, what many companies are doing are carbon accounting or CO2. And... Like I said, it's not just CO2, it's methane, it's nitrous oxide, it's CFCs. There are a few hundred chemicals that you, you have to understand. What, um, what I do when I work with companies who are moving on their sustainability journey um, and are doing carbon accounting, what we need to do is think about scope one, scope two, scope three carbon accounting. And what does that mean? 
That means if you are going to do a carbon footprint for your product or your process, your factory, your supply chain, you have to understand what, what, why are you doing this? And then how do you do this? And why would you consider doing this? Some companies do this for marketing. And I think there's a, a big pushback by consumers accusing some companies of greenwashing. And I think that's true in some cases. But I think there are many companies who are legitimately, truly trying to understand what is it that they are emitting and how can they reduce their, their emissions, reduce their environmental impact. And so what many companies are doing is voluntarily um, calculating what are their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, and then doing a public reporting. And there are specific mechanisms for that. So what is scope one? Scope one emissions would be, let's, let's say you start a, a business and you're going to be manufacturing some type of pet food. Um, you have all of your permits, your licenses from the state, uh, etc. Okay, your scope one emissions are, what are you emitting directly from your facility? So if you don't have any carbon or sorry, any CO2, methane, or nitrous oxide, that's going to be the zero. Uh, if you're talking about industrial fermentation, let's say a whiskey manufacturer or a beer manufacturer, for example, CO2 comes out of the fermenters. So there's going to be a significant quantity of CO2 that's coming out of your facility directly. So it really depends on what are you processing. Scope 2 emissions are the electricity generation and the natural gas generation. So if you're buying your energy sources from the grid, for example, you have to understand what are their emissions. If you are living in Ames, Iowa, where we have an incineration facility, those emissions are going to be different than if you live in Illinois, for example, and you're getting your power from a nuclear plant. Uh, or if you are uh, in Oregon or Washington, where you're getting your electricity from hydroelectric. So uh, many of the municipalities and electric companies will provide information about their, their carbon footprint that you can use. You just need to understand how much energy do you draw. So scope one is what do you emit directly? Scope two is what do your energy sources emit? And then scope three is the more complicated one. This is everything on your supply chain. Hey, I'm producing this kibbled product or this fresh product. Um, I have to know everything that happens upstream, what happens on the farm, what happens at the rendering plant, what happens with transportation. But then you have to understand what happens downstream. The consumers, what's the average distance a consumer drives to the store to buy your product? What do they do with the packaging at the end of the, the life? You have to estimate what are the emissions from the dogs or the cats as you know, from their feces uh, after they digest the product. So it's a lot more complicated and it takes a lot more time to understand everything that happens upstream and downstream. So I would say if, if you are considering starting a sustainability journey, uh, scope one and scope two are really easy to, to start. You have to know what are your direct emissions, but then also... How much electricity do you use? How much natural gas do you use? And if it's a large company, a medium-sized company, small company, 
you'll have to have one or more people actually measuring these. And then what you can do is convert megawatt hours or kilowatt hours of energy use to CO2 emissions. And then the public reporting is is the key aspect. There are a couple of places that um, are available and uh, companies are finding very successful. The Carbon Disclosure Project is one and Science-Based Targets is another. And there are some others, but um, World Wildlife Fund is also getting into this. So those are the, the three that companies are choosing to work with. And you have to... Um, on a yearly basis, provide information on your scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. And then, depending on which organization you work with, they give you a grade. A, B, C, D, E, or F. And so... You'll be um, evaluated like in school. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is transparency to prevent greenwashing. So if you provide this information and you're, you receive a score... That's the first half of the story. The second half of the story then is, okay, what are you going to do about those emissions? What is your plan? What, what are you going to target? And how much are you going to reduce those emissions? And by what deadline? What date? If a company says, we're going to reduce our, our CO2 emissions by 50% in one year, good luck with that. That's, not, <laughs> that's really not feasible. So they have to be reasonable goals. But if you say we're going to reduce our CO2 emissions by 5% over 20 years, is that really genuine? I mean, they have to be progressive reduction targets. And they also, it, some companies will, will play it safe and they'll have minimal reduction goals, but some companies are really progressive. And for example, they want to reduce by 20% or 30% over the next 10 years. So... I think we see a lot of companies that are being quite successful at this. Um, I think the last time I checked the Carbon Disclosure Project, there were several thousand companies that were already uh, reporting uh, their CO2 emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three. And they've expanded not just to the CO2 side of things, but also uh, water use and resource use. So so they're expanding what it mm-hmm. is. Way can- beyond carbon footprint. Yeah. So it, it takes work. It's not an easy thing to do. And it takes commitment mm-hmm. by the company, um, company management, but then also training the employees. Why are we doing this and why does it matter? Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I think the consumer wants those numbers as well. And you can see the statistics and the trends. So even if the, the marketing is driven, this is a good way and it's a good approach to, to try to address not only the consumer needs, but the future for everyone. Right. And I think on, I don't know if in the scope three includes this, but the consumer has a huge impact as well. Sometimes they want to see it, but if you overfeed your dog or cat, it's not sustainable as well. You could be feeding more pets. So, and you see an epidemic of obesity. So the consumer has a huge impact on sustainability as well. So it's not only the pet food companies, but how are you feeding those dogs and cats? And I'm talking more of as a nutritionist standpoint. But also in the labels, are we recommending the right amounts for the pet owners to feed? And we know we have very imprecise ways today to determine the energy that we are using the pet food. So usually you overestimate. So we are telling the pet owners to feed more. So is that that concept as well on the nutrition side that 
hopefully in the future can have more precise estimations of metabolizable energy in the pet food to help the consumer to to feed the correct amount because that's going to impact sustainability for sure and make the customer understand that overfeeding is also a way to have a huge impact on sustainability in a negative way. And then we can even make it more complicated and talk about uh, the ingredients that are used and yeah. grain-free versus uh, not grain-free and insect meal has been promoted as a much more sustainable ingredient. Is it really... Um, it, it all works together in terms of what is that impact on the animal and on the yeah. animals through yeah. the supply chain. So we start talking about ingredients. So I'm going to ask you some questions about it. So I think when you're in scope three, uh, we start on the farm, right? So where do you supply and can you account what you're doing on the farm to, to get the carbon footprint or how the, this works and how the ingredient selection has an impact? How can we track chicken meal that, uh, against some human-grade chicken in our carbon footprint and what do you think is the major impact, big, biggest impact in the scope three or one to three in the overall carbon footprint today in the industry? That is a really controversial question, Julia, because... <laughs> That's my job. Today. <laughs> yeah, if you're talking about like a, a, a formulation that has more fruits and vegetables, less meat, for example, um, versus a formulation that has more meat um, and less of the other things, less of the grains and fruits and vegetables. Um, there are so many different formulations available in the marketplace. I think starting with the ingredients, the individual ingredients, if you look at the carbon footprint of beef production, for example, well, then you have to think about is it pasture-raised? Is it feedlot-raised? What ingredients go into those, those uh, cattle as they're being raised? Um, ruminants tend to produce a lot of CO2 emissions, and not just CO2, but methane, specifically methane, which has a greater impact on global warming than CO2 does. Um, and if you look at one kilogram of beef versus one kilogram of, let's say, tilapia or catfish, for example. The carbon footprints are completely different. Uh, but then you can ask the question, okay, one kilogram of beef, let's say, pasture-raised versus one kilogram of confinement-raised pork or chicken. Uh, and this is just meat. This isn't the rendered products or the meals <laughs> uh, because it will take more energy to... to and more CO2 emissions to produce those. Um, I think one of the challenges is that from a nutrient standpoint, beef is a great ingredient for, for animals and for humans. Um, so what the, the cattle producers are doing and the associations and researchers are, are really looking at ways of how do we change the metabolism of the animals to reduce the methane emissions. And I think we've seen some really interesting successes with, um, let's say, seaweed types of products, for example, and other, um, other ingredients that will actually reduce the methane emissions coming out of the cattle. But then there are some new developments, too, in terms of manure management. So we've got to think about the manure, but we also have to think about um, the gases that are being expelled during uh, the rumination 
So I, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening uh, in the meat production space to reduce those emissions directly from the animals, but then also from their manure when it's placed in the land. And some of that is anaerobic digesters, but also I saw a study last week that's talking about using uh, algae mixed with the manure when it's land applied and how the algae will actually break down that manure before it is able to release uh, methane uh, into the atmosphere or uh, nitrogen dioxide. That's that's interesting. It's really interesting. So I think it depends on the ingredients that you use. What will the carbon footprint of your formulation be? And I think a lot of companies... Uh, are being pushed to to understand what is our our carbon footprint, and it starts on the farm. What happens on the farm, the transportation to the processing plant, the rendering plant. Um, you know, is it fresh meat that you're using? Is it emulsified meat that you're using? Is it uh, rendered meal uh, or some type of a byproduct meal which is energy intensive? You have to understand what are all of those uh, energy uses and emissions. But I, I think we've, we're just at the beginning of some really exciting things. I think the, especially the, the animal processing industry, the livestock producers, there's some really interesting things happening in science right now that is really making a difference in reducing their, the carbon footprints from the animals. So from what you're saying, I, I'm assuming that render products are going to have a higher carbon footprint because it takes a lot of energy during the rendering process. But well, it, are it no, not compared to human grade meat, and how do you account? Can you account for just human grade and not human grade, and how that helps circular economy in our formulation on a sustainability standpoint? You know, I think when we talk about pet foods, you know, the the livestock industry has for thousands of years been really great about. The circular economy. Even though we're talking about circular economy now, you know, really farmers have been doing the circular economy for thousands of years. I know when I was growing up, what did we do with with our garbage, uh, our food waste? We fed it to our pigs, and you know, the the food processing industry um, is really good at recycling um, byproducts and waste products into the livestock industry as different meals. Um, whether it's DDG or soybean meal or meat and bone meal or bakery meal or wheat mids. I mean, the, the food processing industry and the livestock industry really work hand in hand well together. And we've been doing the circular economy for a very long time. Um, it's true that a rendered meal product will have be more energy intensive just because of the additional processing steps that are required. But... There are processing steps that are also required to take the meat off the carcass and get it into a usable form, human food or, or pet food. So there's energy consumption there also. And then we can also ask the question, okay, do we raise the cows to be used for pet food or do we raise the cows to be used for human food? And so then it gets to be a little bit controversial in terms of, well, what mass quantity of that cow is going into human food, what mass quantity is going into pet food, what mass quantity is going to, into other uses. And so when we talk about blood meal or meat and bone meal, uh, but we also have to think about the, the skin and the hide and the hair and the bones and all of the other things. So 
on a, a mass percentage basis, we could allocate that uh, carbon footprint. But that's, that's one way to do it. But we could also look at the value. The value of the meat is much higher than the value of the byproduct. So we could add up what is that economic value and we could, could allocate the, the CO2 emissions that way. I, I think getting wrapped up in the mass versus economic allocation is, is not really useful. I think what we need to focus on as academics, but also as companies, is how do we make the production of the livestock more efficient? How do we make the processing of those livestock into usable ingredients more efficient? And how do we make the uh, use of the pet foods by the dogs, cats, and other animals, how do we make those more efficient? And so I think that goes to the, the idea of understanding how these ingredients are digested and understanding what is the the best uh, level of protein and energy that you need to provide for a specific breed for a specific life stage. You know, it takes a very diverse team to get all those concepts going on and be efficient in the nutrition side, the farm and the plant, and it takes a lot of effort from many people, I think, to get this sustainability role really working on the way that it's supposed to be not only in a marketing standpoint. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go to the store and buy a can or a box or a bag of cat food or dog food and understand, ah, this product has 20% less carbon emission than that product for equivalent performance in my animal. Yeah. No, that will be great. And I think hopefully in the future, lean towards more ways to compare pet food than People in the pet food industry, or not the industry, but the owners, they they spend money and they are willing to give that extra dollar to support their pets, not only on the health side, but sustainability. People are more concerned, and I can even say this: some people they want to pay or take care more, take more care of their what their dog and cat are eating than themselves. And I can assure, I'm <laughs> I do that. My cat eats better than me for sure, and I try to get the best pet food. But and many people do the same. So I think if we are moving towards that. Everyone is going to appreciate it. And and again, I think educating consumers, not only on the the employees on the factory and their, also like the general uh, pet owners and how to feed their pet. And you have a huge impact on the sustainability part, not only the industry. Is everyone working together towards a common goal? Uh, one other question that I had is, carbohydrate sources. So we talk about beef and farm and on the protein source, but as you mentioned, there are grain-free diets, grain-containing. Um, do you have any thoughts on the use of processed legumes or even difference between sorghum and corn and some other more traditional grains or ancient grains that are also popular on their impact on sustainability? Well, I have many thoughts about those, actually. <laughs> I'm oh. glad you hear that. <laughs> So I, I do quite a lot of work in, in cereals, pseudo-cereals, and pulses. Uh-huh. And I think what we are seeing as, as a global community is the, the big four commodities, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice. Um, those are the, the biggest four that are produced globally for human foods, for pet foods, for livestock foods, for uh, um industrial uses. I, we see that 
during the 20th century, many countries greatly expanded the production of all of those. And that's led to, to improvements in nutrition for, for people, for, uh, for animals. But I, I think what we see is, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, an acceleration of interest in the ancient greats. And um, one that I just learned about this year is Fonio from Western Africa. Uh, from the Senegal region. So I haven't Fonio, heard about that one. Oh, it's tiny. It's really interesting. Um, I have a bag here in my office. I can, can show you at some point. But I'll stop by to ask about that. <laughs> and this is the year of, of sorghum, the UN FAO's year of sorghum um, and millet. And so what we see is interest in these these different kinds of products that traditionally have been used in different parts of the world that may have been forgotten um, for some time. But, oh, by the way, this type of, of cereal is much more efficient at growing in this region, uh, whether it's in the Sahel or sub-Saharan Africa or the southern United States. It's more efficient in terms of water use, in terms of photosynthesis, uh, efficiency. Uh, maybe we should grow more of this. And oh, by the way, there are some interesting micronutrients, uh, phytosterols that are important for, for human health. And so I, I think what we see happening in, in the human food region, especially say over the last decade with quinoa, with amaranth, and then the whole cascade of, of ancient grains, uh, I think we see that also trickling into into the pet food space as well. Um, now, the the interesting challenge is many of these ancient grains are produced on a much smaller scale than corn, soybeans, rice, wheat, and so they're much more expensive. So if you go to the grocery store and you buy uh, a pound of quinoa, for example, you know you're talking about fifteen dollars, maybe ten dollars if you're you're lucky. But um, some of these grains. Like uh, Kernza. Have you heard of Kernza? Not really. So it is a wheat grass. It's also an ancient grain, but it's much more efficient at nitrogen use in the field. And the Land Institute has been making a push for several years, and I think we're seeing interest in Kernza. But I bought, believe this or not, I bought five pounds to use in uh, my grain processing course last spring. It was $100 for five pounds. Well, so many of these are not feasible yet uh, for large-scale production in pet foods, but, you know, they're coming. And I think there's more interest in farmers. Uh, And there are reasons why grains evolved in specific regions, whether it's because of heat tolerance, drought tolerance, uh, photosynthesis efficiency, um, so I, I think we're, we're going to see more of these coming into the pet food space, but it's going to take a, a bit more time. I think we'll see adoption and growth in the human food space first. Yeah, I think sorghum is the one, the one that is most utilized today in the pet food industry and uh, some big companies they have been using and it's found in Kansas and most of Texas a little bit. And that one is more widely used and people are more aware of. And I assume that those grains or any carbohydrate, major carbohydrate source are going to have a less impact on carbon footprint compared to this animal 
protein sources that we utilize, right? Typically, especially when it when it comes to to beef. Yeah. So sometimes they oversupply protein, not only the nitrogen aspect, but the carbon footprint as well. We are putting more that is not needed. So exactly something to consider. It's all a balancing act. It's all about how do we how do we balance nutrients and digestibility with carbon footprint and availability and price because all of these things have to work together. Yeah, and I think we are moving more towards working together, not only formulating to meet those recommendations, but the impact on the animal, on sustainability or everything. So I think the next year is going to be very exciting on where the pet food industry is heading to. And if our formulation software can can also have information about ability, carbon footprint, water footprint, uh, transportation distance. I mean, there's so many metrics that we could could ask the, the companies that make this software. I think, I think this could make a huge difference going forward in the industry. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's interesting that even people, they want the I want this organic and it's more expensive and then it's not even, it's more local. So the transportation together, you're not actually helping the environment. So there's many aspects that people don't see as well when they buy a product in the store. So being transparent as you're moving towards towards you is going to be very important for everyone to realize their what the impact of their choices. Exactly. I think my last question before we go to our final ones is, a lot of, we see a lot in pet food industry now, now the use of human-grade ingredients and which going to compete with the human food market. Where do you see human food, human-grade ingredients in the pet food industry affecting sustainability? And do you see a huge impact or how that's going to affect the circular economy, for example? I'll back up for, for one second and talk a little bit about the movement of AFCO and FDA in recent years. Mm-hmm. And... Whenever you talk to anyone that works with AFCO or at the FDA, they will tell you that pet food, livestock, feed, that's human food. So part of that is due to the food that we eat ultimately will be impacted by what the animals eat uh, or how the the grain is grown. But our pets, uh, what the FDA sees is it's all human food from a regulatory standpoint. And I think that's important because uh, part of this safety, um, if something is toxic to us, it's probably going to be toxic to our cats. So um, I, I think that's that's really, it's proactive. Um, but I think also when you think about eating fresh meat versus, let's say, a rendered protein, for example. Humans don't, yeah. Unless it's, you know, accidentally or, or whatever. But, you know, we do handle the food. And when I put the food in, in my dog dish at night for my dogs, you know, is there any contamination of that? I don't know. So, you know, you should always wash your hands. Um, but I, I think the, the this food safety, I think, is really important. Um, we think about food safety when we're manufacturing human food products, but we also think about food safety. Well, hopefully we think about food safety when we're preparing raw meat products in our homes um, and not doing cross-contamination, washing our surfaces, washing our hands, etc. Um, 
But if you buy a pet food, is it microbiologically safe for us to, to handle? Um, well, you should always wash your hands anyway. But I think from a human food, pet food, livestock feed standpoint, I think uh, food safety is, is really important. Uh, but then nutrient availability is, is also important. So um, I think one of the things that strikes me is we're not just eating one ingredient. I mean, we could go home and we could eat steak every night and nothing else. We could have steak for breakfast, steak for lunch, steak for dinner, and our body would not like that very much. So I think a balanced diet is important for, for our pets as well as ourselves. And so when we talk about comparing human food to pet food, um, food safety is part of it, but also a nutrient balance and ingredient balance. I mean, some people don't like to eat broccoli, but they probably should. Some people don't like salad, but they probably should because of a balanced diet. So, and I think, I think what a lot of nutritionists are doing uh, in recent years, responding to consumers' desire to feed their pets better than themselves, for sure, but also provide um, to provide uh, a balanced diet. So, I think we saw some some interesting things happen with the partitioning of the pulses several years ago with the cardiac myopathy. Um, in dogs. Uh, but I, I hope the industry is learning and I hope that, uh, you know, we don't see that happen again, but I know that there are, especially in the, the cereals and the pulses, there's a lot of interest in fractionating protein from fiber, from oil, from starch. And then, Oh, by the way, we can recombine those into almost, but not quite the same thing. So I think we have to be careful when we start talking about the fractionation. Yeah, and we still have to do, and has a lot of work to be done on the balanced part. We say complete and balanced, but we don't balance amino acids really well. We don't balance micronutrients. So there's a lot of research to be done in these areas. And I hope we can improve pet food in that sense too. And I think we can talk for hours about sustainability and pet food. But for now, I think I'm going to move to our last two questions. And I'm going to have you again probably in this podcast in the future so you can keep talking about it. And my first one is whoever wants to learn more about sustainability, what is one resource that you recommend to people? I think I would recommend as a starting point, uh, ifeeder.org, I-F-E-E-D-E-R.org. So ifeeder is an organization that uh, was begun several years ago with the American Feed Industry Association, AFIA. Uh, some of you listeners uh, are probably familiar with AFIA and some of you are probably members of AFIA. Um, but the idea when they started this um, second organization was, how can we improve the sustainability of the animal feed industry, including the pet food industry? So um, my colleague, Laura Moody, who is also um, a fellow Iowa Seder, uh, she left Iowa State before I, I came, unfortunately, but she's the executive director. She's been uh, in place for a couple of years. Some of you may, may know Laura. Some of um, Laura, maybe you're listening to this podcast now. Uh, thanks for the work that you do. Uh, I would highly recommend checking out the resources on the iFeeder website because uh, their mission is to help companies uh, move towards more sustainable products. And this is not just scope one, scope two, scope three. This is everything. That's great. I want to take a look at the website as well. 
And my last one is, do you have any tips for success for maybe younger people who are entering the industry or academia like me, or maybe people who are more veterans and they want to transition or what challenge that you face and you, what kind of mindset do you have to look on? Oh, this is a complicated question, Julia. Uh, <laughs> I think we may need a separate podcast just on this yeah, yeah. alone. Um, I think for me, one of the most important lessons that I learned uh, as a graduate student, um, I will have to give a shout out to my former mentor, Rolando Flores. Um, he is now Dean of Agriculture at New Mexico State University. Um, when I was his graduate student, uh, we were trying to do some studies. I think it was related to swine blood and uses of swine blood. Um, in at that point in time, when we were doing the studies, very few people had worked with, with that product, especially we were trying to use it in formulation. Mm -hmm. um, and the lesson I learned was, oh, you don't know how to do this? Well, give it a try. See what works. See what doesn't work. Let's see what we can learn and then build another experiment. And it really was, was encouraging because if you're going into research or you've done research uh, or you're, you're thinking about an academic journey, you don't do this to do the same thing that everyone else has done. Well, sometimes you do if you're trying to prove your competitors wrong. But, you know, most of the time you're trying to, because, yeah, okay, let's face it, there, there can be politics in research and in universities and companies, and there's competition. Um, but really, why we do this is to learn and build a knowledge base. And it's kind of exciting when nobody else has done it before. And, okay, let's see what we can see in the lab or in the pilot plant or in the field trial. And okay, all experiments have a cost. That's true, but try it. And if it works, that's awesome. But if it doesn't, that's still awesome because now you've learned something that doesn't work or you've learned a process or procedure and the next round you can build more and do more. So in terms of mindset, give it a try and see what happens. Yeah, I know. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's me. That was that was really eye opening as a graduate student because, you know, I was as an undergrad, I was used to, OK, you do this, you get this result. You do this, you get that result. And then as, as a master's researcher, oh, it didn't work. This is really frustrating. Oh, the, <laughs> it's a terrible study. It's a terrible experiment. Well, you, you can't get stuck in that mindset. You have to have to think that you're building and you're moving forward. Yeah, be open to failure and learn how to deal with it and learn from it. And and I think uh, as researchers or anyone, we need to not accept what has been done for the past 20 years. Maybe wrong. So challenge that status quo and not only do what people have been doing over and over and, as you said, try something different and challenge those traditional concepts because sometimes things change. Everything changes. So maybe we should try different things too. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Kurt, for, for being here on this podcast. I really appreciate your taking our time to talk with me and our audience about sustainability. And I hope you'll join us again in the future to talk more about it or any other topic you want to discuss with us. Thank you so much, Julia. It was a pleasure. Um, look forward to, to joining you again.